Hello, listeners, and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I will be your host for today's episode. Today, we are talking about prosperity gospel versus poverty gospel. Is it preachers and sneakers, or is it a soul issue? Tune into today's episode to hear our thoughts on that. But before we get into it, welcome to the month of February, which means that the AC Conference being held at Briarcrest Christian Academy, College, and Seminary is happening on February 10th to the 11th. That's right. It's just over a week. And we are super excited to see you guys there. Following that, we will be leading into our AC conference being held in BC on March 3rd to the 4th at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. But before that conference, we're excited to announce that we will be holding a pre-conference. This is a pre-conference to the BC conference in March called Made in Canada. This is going to be held on March 2nd from 7 to 9 p.m. at DeVries Centre Chapel in Langley, BC. So make sure you head to conference.apologeticscanada.com to register for the conferences. If you would like to take in the pre-conference to the BC conference, head to apologeticscanada.com slash madeincanada forward slash. And you'll get all the information there. That's all I have for you today. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I am your host for today's episode. I'm here with Andy and Steve as we await the majestic return of Wesley Huff. Sometime in the morrow, <laughs> not tomorrow, but just not today. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. People are wondering, doing where great. is Wes? Uh, they, had a, uh, they had a baby. And so mm-hmm. he is uh-huh. with, uh, with uh, taking time off to help his wife was, as they have three kids now. And yeah, Number praying three. God's richest blessings over their family. So both of you guys have two kids. Was that always the plan, or did you just get to and were like, "We're done. Well, that's it. We're, we're, we're the wives. Like it's over." <laughs> I mean, for me, it really depended on the day, right? You know, when the kids are waking up every, you know, fifteen minutes, wanting to be fed. Like when they're like brand newborn, I'm just like, "Okay, that's it. I'm done." But then when they're a little <laughs> older and things are more manageable, they're like, "Ah, you know what? You know, having another one would be great." But uh, yeah, I mean. We settled with just two, but uh, yeah, it really depended on the day. Right, right. What about you, Andy? Uh, you, you're outnumbered once you have three, and it def- definitely <laughs> changes the dynamics of, of things, right? Now now you're juggling. Before, right. you know, when, it, when there's two, it's just one-on-one. But uh, my wife and I, you know, I don't know, everybody has, you know, different reasons why they kind of settle into two. I, I definitely say though that I was more open to having more kids, but Nancy was like, oh, I think we're done. And I was like, okay. So I don't know. Seems like anticlimactic. What a, like I know you're in the midst of, of that uh wrestling match right now. Do we have more uh, kids? I, I, yeah, I wouldn't even call it a wrestling match entirely. Like we uh we we've we've talked about it off and on, but the reality is is we're like, I'm so good with I'm so good with two. We got a boy, we got a girl. And I don't want to be selfish, right? I don't want to be selfish. I don't. <laughs> so we're we're good uh in that regard. It's been uh it's been fun. Araya, we actually just registered her for school. Um Woo-hoo. like we're doing homeschooling, but we registered for her part-time classes that she's going to be doing and I was Okay, I'm good. I'm good right now. 
Oh, I'm good right now, but we'll see when she actually <laughs> leaves for a day to go to school. But uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. But that doesn't segue us any in any way, shape, or form into what we're talking about today. Maybe <laughs> maybe someone on the financial side of things. Today we're we're talking about the prosperity gospel, what it is and what it what it isn't. But to to kind of put it out there simply for our listeners, the prosperity gospel, as it has been coined, is really really has been become most popular and prominent, um, at least to be picked at or pointed out uh, in the mega churches. You know, you see churches that are making millions and millions of dollars. Maybe the preacher pulls up in a Rolls Royce and he's just looking fancier than everybody else. And people are people have a lot of issue with that. And I think there's definitely good argument for it. But uh, at the same time, I think there can be moments where we're pointing our fingers in the wrong direction and at the wrong things. By the way, on that note, Troy, did you hear, I think it was in the news last year of a preacher, should have looked up the details of this, but what you said just reminded me of it. It's a preacher that was actually robbed in his own church because yeah. like, he had, I think it was something to the tune of like a million dollars worth of like uh, jewelry that he wore. Yeah. It was a preacher and his wife robbed of $1 million of jewelry. Uh, during a sermon, <laughs> Bishop Lamar <laughs> Miller Whitehead was oh, live so you, streaming you got his the Sunday details. sermon. Yeah, he was live streaming his Sunday sermon at the Leaders of Tomorrow International Churches in Brooklyn when he asked his congregation, how many of you have lost your faith because you saw somebody else die? Moments later, three masked people armed with guns entered the church, according to police. All right, all right, all right, Miller Whitehead said as he got down on the ground and laid on flat on his stomach, according to Clips of the incident, which was captured on live stream. One of the intruders stood over Miller, appeared to take objects from the pastor, and walked off with them. All told, the intruders made off with more than $1 million in jewelry belonging to Miller and his 38-year-old wife. The New York City Police Department said in a statement to the Washington Post, adding that an investigation is ongoing and no arrests were made by late Monday. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, man. Wow. By the way, that was not a setup. I did not set Troy up for that. <laughs> Clearly, he had that in his holster ready. Uh, oh, man. What a, what a story, man. First of all, because we're going to get into this. There, there's the argument that, you know, I'm not going to tell a pastor or, you know, preacher or whatever they want to wear. But $1 million in jewelry in Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't even think Mr. Brooklyn. T's got more than a million dollars in jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. so many so many red flags to begin with but well yeah. we're here now we might as well jump in right into there but like uh, like how do you guys look at that and i wouldn't even say defend it but see any form of like good in there <laughs> well at the church where i used to serve in the area here there is a particular pastor whose spouse happens to be uh you know kind of something like a financial guy. And so, you know, they manage their money well and they are actually doing, you know, pretty, pretty good. Um, but this pastor always had a bit of an issue with the car that they drove because it was a BMW and isn't it a little too flashy? A pastor showing up in a BMW? like, And so this pastor um, always was a little uncomfortable with that. And I remember very specifically too, um, Andy and and me, there, there was that one time when we went to this young adults retreat thing and we were booking hotels and things like that. And he found the best deal that he could. 
but it ended up being a really fancy hotel. But it was actually cheaper to go there. And so one of the pastors at the church came to him and said, you know, next time pay a little bit more money and go to a, a hotel that's like less fancy. Because there is something about, th- there's this kind of expectation, right? A pastor yeah. showing up with a million dollars worth of jewelry or, you know, <laughs> rolling in a Rolls Royce, you know, that sort of thing. There's something that's just not quite it doesn't quite fit with what we know of Jesus from, say, you know, the Gospels, whom we're supposed to become more and more like. Sure, I remember that, Steve. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember. Yeah, we got a great deal on a hotel that just was was fancy, and it's like <laughs> just spend more money and go someplace that has a different name. But I, I do get that sentiment. Because it's something that I've struggled with as a pastor. Uh, there are certain cars that even if I could get a really good deal on it, I probably wouldn't buy. And and I don't mm-hmm. know if that's right or wrong. I'm, I'm I'm working it out with the Lord. But there's just certain certain cars I'm like, I don't know. It's just got it's just got the the wrong image. But as as we get into this this issue and as we talk about it, I I do want to begin. You know, Troy, as you're as you're raising this important issue, I. I do want to kind of poke a hole at it right from the beginning. In that, although I hear a lot of Christians challenging, and I'd argue rightfully, the prosperity gospel, something I'm starting to hear more talked about, and I think rightly should be talked about and challenged, is the poverty gospel. I don't know, have you guys mm-hmm. ever heard of this mm-hmm. this concept of the poverty gospel? Yep. No, I've never heard of it, but I can sort of take a guess at it. Uh, I'd say my time in the church, I've been preached more the poverty gospel than I have the prosperity gospel. And I think it just depends upon what church you find yourself in. Yeah, I would agree. I um I think for a lot of a lot of my upbringing, I saw the other side of things where I'll just call it what it is. Pastors didn't showed up to church like too humble. As in like shirts not ironed, you know what I mean? They're, they're sh- mm-hmm. They got a button popped over here. You know, they're, they're like, and, and I'm not knocking anyone for, for their, their body shape or weight or anything, but they're lifting their arms up, their belly's hanging out the bottom. And I'm, it's all these things where I'm like, but you would be the first person to be frustrated if someone showed up in a three-piece suit and wasn't the pastor. You know, if someone showed up to your church wearing a three-piece suit and really nice shoes or whatever, all of a sudden it'd be like, whoa, what what's the big deal? We're not that kind of church. Well, I think it, it really, really comes down to the heart of the the person who's been called to to pastor and the presentation of that person, and and also demographic. I don't think people take d- demographic into consideration when a lot of these stones are being are being cast. Mm-hmm. I think there is a certain trap that people can fall into on either extreme end, right? But the problem is the same. What I mean by that is this. You can fall into the trap of loving money, mm-hmm. but you can fall into the trap of loving poverty yeah. in a way like as if poverty in and of itself is a virtue. Right. right? And I found it always interesting. I, I'd love to hear your take on this, guys, is that when I read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is talking about store for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth, I've heard one commentator say, that, you know, think about it, most people that he was addressing were, were living below poverty line. 
Mm-hmm. And yet these are the people to whom Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he's constantly telling them, don't worry. Don't, don't be anxious, right? Because on this side, you know, there are people just as obsessed with money. It's just that they don't have it. And here you have people that are obsessed with, obsessed with money and they have it. The problem mm-hmm. is the same. You, you look to your material things for security. Like, does right. that make sense? Yep. And, and I think because ultimately what you're getting at is they become a, an idol. They're what you're putting your hope into. They're finding your identity in. And Jesus is constantly challenging that. He's constantly challenging us that our hope is found in Him, that our identity is found in Him, that it's found, particularly as you read in the Sermon on the Mount, found in, in His kingdom and not building your own kingdom. This is this is challenging for us to do. I I mean, just think about this one. Okay, imagine you could go back, you know, in in the past to to these times where, you know, we look we look at, at these sorts of people, whether it's in the first century or or, or further back. But like, like, imagine you could just go to Egypt. I'll just take or or if you could go to Rome. Okay, and you take the the most powerful person in that time. And, and ask yourself, do you think if you could go back in a time machine, okay, and we'll, we'll just take Rome in the first century, and I go to Caesar, the most powerful person at that time, and I say, hey, you want to hop in this time machine and come to the come to the future? You know, if you come to the future, you can have a home with one, running water, hot water anytime you want. You can have a, a stove. You don't even have to use a fire, and you can bake whatever you want, and you can go to stores that are full of food. And Do you see what I'm saying? You can even have a car that's not... You know, a chariot, right? That that doesn't even use horses, but it's as strong as 300. Do you want to come to the future? I, I just find it interesting that they'd be like, uh, yeah, sign me up. You know, I'll hop in, I'll hop in the time machine. My point right. being that we never think we're wealthy, right? We never, yeah. we never think that we have enough. And yet you are more wealthy than the most powerful person in the first century. They would, they would swap places with you. Free healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. right? Shoes, their, clothing, their healthcare was uh, a guillotine and a sword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I get to spend my weeks on a boat water skiing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just insane to me, though. That and, and here's where I would kind of really point my finger, though, at the prosperity thing, at the prosperity gospel, is that prosperity is never, never enough. In prosperity never being enough, you you begin to lose sight of who is enough that Jesus is is enough and and if you get your sights though set on on this idea of prosperity prosperity is this goal that's always out of reach because there's always somebody that's got more wealth than you and ultimately you're just you know become envious of somebody else you know what you're saying there uh, uh is really important and i think it can be demonstrated i think by the fact that prosperity gospel teachers, here's something that they're never going to preach on, and it's contentment. I don't think they would ever do that. I mean, they they love to cite Philippians 4.13, right? Like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But you know as well as I do that the whole point of that passage is Paul saying, whether I have plenty or whether I live in poverty, I, I've learned the secret of contentment, and, and that is to be in Jesus. Yeah. Right. So contentment is the key context there. But how many prosperity theologians or gospel preachers do you know who would preach on contentment? 
right? I, I don't, I can't think of any, and that only goes to show, like, it, it kind of reinforces your point, Andy, right? About, you know, prosperity is just never enough. You're exactly right, Steve, as I watch a spider climb down from my ceiling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> getting back to the, you know, even the passage, you know, storing up treasures in heaven, I think... I think that's one of those passages too that has become so just like linear to people because mm. no, a lot of, I've, I rarely have heard anyone actually break that down. What are my treasures in heaven? You know, what, what are treasures in heavens? And, and if you look at Deuteronomy, like Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Like those treasures in heaven are souls. Those treasures in heaven are people that you've walked with and led to Christ and have exemplified who Christ is to them. But that's a really hard concept because I think it because it's so used to combat financial prosperity, people don't understand. They miss the caveat that, man, I could use the things that God has given me for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his kingdom, even my good business practice, because this is my issue with people that poke at prosperity, is it's so easy to be a preachers and sneakers finger pointing culture where you see the pastor dressed like this, the driving this and all those sorts of things, but you run a multi-million dollar business. It just so happens that I don't see it every day. Now I, I want to springboard off this. The, the, you said a lot there, Troy, that could be digested. Let, let's go to one of the first things you talked about where we're looking at storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, because early on when I started going to church, uh, the message that I heard was not so much a prosperity gospel that I could have treasures now, but it was more kind of like this future prosperity gospel where I get treasures when I die. So mm. although th this is what I would say that I heard from a lot of churches when I was first introduced to the church, and it was this, you might, you might not be rich now, but you will be rich when you die. And you might not own a mansion now, but you'll have a mansion when you get to heaven. And all those things that you don't have now that you wish you had, you'll have when you go to heaven. Now, did you guys hear that kind of a message or was it just I, me? I never heard that. Okay. I, I've heard it in some contexts, but yes, I have heard that sort of thing before. I mean, because I remember song, thinking to big, myself, big house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. That's just it. I'd just be thinking to myself, okay, like, I guess uh, what I'm, you know, the gospel or what I'm looking forward to is what kind of mansion I'm going to get one day. And then, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what kind of a, you know, what kind of a mansion am I looking for? You know, I mean, ultimately, you're <laughs> like, well, I'd rather just have a mansion now sort of idea. You know, it's interesting that you you lose sight of the gospel itself. The gospel you know, perhaps we could say, maybe you don't lose sight of the gospel, you've reinterpreted the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I would say that whether you're talking about poverty, prosperity teachers, or poverty teachers, they've lost sight of the gospel. They have yeah. made mm -hmm. the gospel about the here and now, and it ultimately becomes this message of either positive thinking, or maybe we could say positive suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to pick up on what you said just now about the gospel, right? And how prosperity gospel preachers, they lose sight of the gospel. So let's just park there just for a few minutes. 
Um, so what is the gospel, right? Uh, it, when we look at the gospel, it has several components to it. One is, well, you were created good, but you're fallen and you need forgiveness, right? And God, through Jesus Christ, will reconcile you to himself so that you can be restored and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Um, now, w- the problem that I have with prosperity theology is not so much the desire for prosperity as such, but it, it just, like Andy said, it completely misses the point because it becomes very much man-centered, right? It, it's not just prosperity, right? It's prosperity for me. Right? It's prosperity for me. And, and your problem is not sin. Your problem is limited thinking, that kind of restrictive mindset. And so what's mm. the solution? You allow God to bless you. It's man-centered. You're diagnosing the problem wrong. It, it, it's, it's your limited thinking. So you change your thinking and you access God's power through your faith, right? In this kind of a mystical kind of a way. What that does in the end uh, is you change the nature of your relationship with God to like quid pro quo kind of thing, right? It's a transactional kind of thing. You're treating God as this vending machine that you can just insert the coin of your prayer into this cosmic vending machine and it'll spit out whatever it is that you want. Um, and so then what happens to the view of heaven? Because we've said many times over that the the core of heaven is to be with God, but according to the prosperity theology, the core of heaven is to be prosperous in mm. a material way. And I, I, I think, yeah, so I hear when you say, Andy, that prosperity preachers are missing the gospel, that's what I think of. Interestingly enough, prosperity teachers don't even talk about heaven. I've listened to n- many of their sermons. I don't hear about heaven. I just hear about the here and now. Yeah. Well, see, I think one of the challenges that comes up is. Like if you look at the interaction between, you know, God and Solomon in First Kings, God asks him specifically what do you want what he wants. Now, I I like to believe <laughs> that God already knew what Solomon was gonna ask for, but it doesn't change the fact that scripture explicitly points to ask and, you know, ask and you shall receive. And then you can bring in all the things of, well, if you have the mind of Christ and, you know, if you're considering the Lord's ways and the Lord's desires, and he, he's going to guide you towards his desires. We can, we can already agree on that. But one of the, the thing that Solomon asks for is wisdom. And I, I think that's the beautiful thing about when you're talking about prosperity is sometimes I think, I think in my own life to make it real for people, it's like, Lord, I want more finances. Lord, I need more whatever. But really what I should be asking for is wisdom with what I have. Because if I ask for wisdom, then I have a foundation. We've been talking about this with Brandon. If the foundation of your desire is wisdom in all circumstances, then the Lord absolutely could just decide to bless you and bestow because you've asked for godly wisdom in how to steward it. And I think that's sometimes where the hangup can be. You know, it's interesting you should say that, Troy. I was talking to uh, a young person recently. It's in uh, it's in school, you know, with some really intelligent people. Like the the schooling that they're in is is difficult to get into, and these are these are smart people. He's just talking about how prevalent drugs are within mm. you know his classmates, particularly cocaine, and 
And I, and I was just like, wow, I, I thought these people were smart. And it was funny. He said, Andy, there's a difference between being smart and being wise. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think sometimes we'll confuse those two. Mm-hmm. We'll confuse those. And when we think about this issue, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about wisdom. And, and what does what does God's wisdom look like? Because you you know you're talking about Solomon, and we can look at Ecclesiastes. Ultimately, I, I would argue we're you know the author of Ecclesiastes. I, I I would attribute that to Solomon. He's basically saying, listen, in his in his search for wisdom, he tried doing it without God, and ultimately tried everything. Tried wealth, women, right? Tried alcohol, tried work, tried everything, right? And in the end, he's like, it's all meaningless. Problem is, though, is that's a message that, that we don't, don't want to hear or that yeah. we just won't believe. And I think one of the challenges, though, with when we think about just the wisdom aspect is when we come to the scriptures, we're lacking wisdom. And so, yeah. we, when, we, when we look at it, we're not looking at what God's trying to say. We're trying to look at what does this mean to me and how do I want to apply this to myself? So, let me just let me just take a look at, for example, Second Corinthians eight nine, because this goes back to what you were saying, Steve. Paul says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich." Now, if I that you you can you can imagine how easy it is then to take a verse like that and to say, "Look." God wants you to be rich, like he's rich. And so, Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. One of the things that's interesting about the Bible is you can, you can actually make the Bible say whatever you want by taking a very selective view of the Bible and only reading it in selective chunks that you ignore everything else, right? And you just read those things that you want to directly apply to to your life and that ultimately uh, align with the way that you're already thinking. Because mm-hmm. here's a beautiful passage, of course, it's about the gospel, but ultimately I'm going to make it about me being wealthy. It becomes a prosperity right. gospel and not a salvation gospel. Yeah. I think that's that's where we you know you hear the 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 famous verse it's just what good is it to gain the world? And and lose your soul, and you know, Third John one verse two again, it it speaks to a greater level of prosperity. It shows a, makes a clear distinction between two forms of prosperity. It says, it says, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. And, and I think that just as your soul prospers is extremely important. It's setting your soul and the health of your soul as the foundation of it, because then the other forms of prosperity, be it health, finance, family, whatever, the perspective is based on your soul's condition. If you have a healthy soul, regardless of what's in your bank account, regardless of what you're wearing, whether flashy or not, your perspective isn't going to be on the wrong things. But there's this really important point that the Lord is like, man. Don't forsake your soul for all this other stuff. It can't be the other way around. It's like I don't pray that your <laughs> I pray that your soul prospers as your money prospers. That's what that's what prosperity teachers are are showing you, you know? That as your money grows, man, God's favor is in your life. It's like, wait, that's that's not actually how it works. Sadly though, a lot of churches 
hold that kind of a view, even if they're not prosperity uh, churches. This is this is one of the things I I learned early on as a pastor: a difference between a healthy elder board and an unhealthy elder board. And you'd be amazed at how many in how many churches they will assume that if somebody's done well in business, that they should be on the elder board. And I'm telling you right now, those were some of the most unhealthy churches I've ever been a part of. Yeah. But who should be on the elder board? Well, somebody like what the Bible tells you should be on the elder board, you know, as, as somebody who is self-controlled, right? Somebody who loves God, somebody who is demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit in their life. The, those are the kind of people that you want leading your church. And when I've seen that done, I've I've seen the church prosper. Yeah. Now, yeah. Let me let me bring up another verse for you guys because this is another one of those that gets tossed around by prosperity teachers. I want to bring it up because there's so many verses that I find Christians will get tripped up on and it's hard for them then to not see where the prosperity teacher has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And again, don't get me don't don't miss don't misunderstand me here. We could do the same thing with poverty teachers and and I'll, I'll yeah. bring up more of that in just a moment. But here's a verse in in Mark chapter 11 verses 23 and on that just constantly get brought up, right? Where Jesus says, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say uh, will happen, it will be done for them. So, and then he goes on to say, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, of course, that final little piece there often gets dropped. And instead, it, it'll just be that that other portion of the scripture. And I, I've just met a lot of Christians who who will come across that and they're and they're lost. And I and I just want to give you some some wisdom as you're reading the Bible. Read the Bible in in its entirety. Read a book of the Bible in its entirety. Read a chapter in its entirety. If you don't do that, and if you don't appreciate that what Mark is saying is following a line of thought, then you are going to be very confused. And then ultimately, you're just going to read the, read into this whatever you want, instead of reading it according to what Mark is wanting you to understand. Or in this case, what Mark's telling you that Jesus is teaching for you to understand. And if you follow the context of what has happened before this comes, what is the mountain that they are talking about throughout the passage? Zion is the mountain that's being talked about. It's the one that Jesus has gone up to, gone back, and now has gone back up to again. And what has he done? He's gone to the temple and he's cursed it. And he said, this this is never going to save you. And interestingly enough, Jesus condemns what a lot of the prosperity gospel teachers tend to do. And that is they tend to camp out in the Old Testament. They tend to camp out in God's promises to the Israelite people that they'll have a land and that God's going to bless them and, and whatnot. And so then they'll take all of what's going on there and they'll just direct, they'll, they'll circumvent Jesus and apply it to them. And, and Jesus calling this out when he goes up to the temple and he's like, this temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. But instead, what you've done with this is made this, of course, you know, into a den of robbers. In other words, you've gone out thieving, 
break in relationship and think that you can come here to the temple and think you're going to be safe here, that this is a safe haven. And Jesus is ultimately saying, this is going to be destroyed. And Mm -hmm. where Jesus comes to then in the end is, again, what is he talking about? Well, the same thing he's been talking about the whole time, the gospel. The the gospels are about the gospel, period. And that ultimately, this mountain that holds the temple will be destroyed through what? Through faith, through asking. Mm And through God's love for you and His grace, He will give you the greatest thing that you could possibly receive, forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, uh, speaking of context, what an important point, right? Preach on, preacher. Yeah, that passage (laughs) comes directly after the whole withered fig tree side of things, right? And Jesus is also going to go in and cleanse the whole temple. And so, you know, the the disciples are marveling at just how wonderful the temple is. And Jesus is like, yeah, none of these, not one of these stones will be in its place. Yeah. Um, so he is kind of f- predicting or foreshadowing the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Now you have to put yourself in the shoes of the first century Palestinian Jewish mind, right? What they're thinking is, well, if the temple is gone, then where are we going to go and pray? Because this was a center of prayer. Where are we going to go? And Jesus is saying, well, it's not going to be at this temple. Remember that, that, that story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman, right? She perceives that, that he's a prophet. And what's the first thing that she's asking about? Well, is it this mountain or that mountain that we're supposed to you know, yeah. sacrifice and pray? And Jesus says, well, a time is coming and it's now here. Right? It's not about temples. It, it's it's neither. You know, God is looking for those. Yeah, God is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not mm-hmm. about temples anymore, and that that's the context. Yeah. In other words, Jesus is cleaning out the temple, but this is foreshadowing that he's going to be cleaning out a different temple. You that you're going to become the temple of God, the way, and this is important to appreciate what Jesus is doing, the way it was meant to be in the beginning. So, what happens though, and let's just talk about this quickly here. What happened though, is you have after World War II, you have prosperity teaching that just catches fire, particularly through um Pentecostal theology. Uh, you you have this this idea of the health and wealth preaching that people were were grabbing hold of and and has continued you know to this day. And you, you have that starting off with people like Oral Roberts. So if people are wondering, okay, like where where do we see this happening? Well, I would argue, of course, that health and wealth preaching goes even further back than than you know. World War II, the end of World War II, you, you can see it in, in, in different ways. But I think the culture was just ripe for this health and wealth teaching to, to take root and to really uh, explode. And it you know, began in North America, but it has, it has gone global uh, and is quite prevalent in places like Africa right now. But I want to just read for you some of the titles of, of I'll just two. I'll just for the sake of time, two prominent uh, teachers. So let's start with Oral Roberts. Now, here's some of the titles of books that that he wrote, and he wrote many books. Uh, if you need healing, do these things. 
When you see the invisible, you can do the impossible. Something good is going to happen to you. Expect a new miracle every day. A daily guide to miracles. How I learned Jesus was not poor. That one, of all of them, I'm like, uh, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by that one. Uh, So now we got to see that Jesus is wealthy to make myself feel wealthy. Because this is problematic, of course, is that when you look at the New Testament, you see that Jesus, the disciples, are not living out the prosperity gospel. They're not healthy and wealthy. And in fact, they all end up getting persecuted and die for their faith. That doesn't that doesn't preach well, right? So so that tends to just to tends to just get dropped. And also notice, and I'm going to re- now read Joel Olstein, where the focus is on you. What you're seeing is an extreme individualism within within Christianity, where the focus is not Jesus, the focus is not God, the focus is on you. Uh, and it's also interesting, by the way, if you look at Joel Olstein's books, about eighty percent of them is the book cover is his face. Uh, so <laughs> you got a you got a great smile, <laughs> great teeth. I have to give it to him. Yeah, he does. Okay, so his books: uh, Your Best Life Now, The Power of I Am, uh, Empty Out the Negative, Become a Better You, You're Stronger Than You Think, The Power of Favor, It's Your Time, Rule Your Day, Six Keys to Maximizing Your Success and Accelerating Your Dreams, Your Greater Is Coming. The Abundance Mindset, I Declare, 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. I think, I think that that just preaches in of itself. We could probably just end the podcast right there, that there's something <laughs> wrong with that. You know, that, that is not the gospel that Jesus came to teach and preach. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's the, I think that's why it's, it, the, the challenge is the gap between the two, which is, like as we said earlier in the podcast, the danger of then seeing that and being like, "No, run to run to poverty." It's like, well, no, Jesus is not calling you to be poverty stricken. He's actually not even concerned that if you're a multi million dollar business owner, he's not concerned. He's concerned about your heart. Like you got a mil- you got billions of dollars, but you're spiritually broke. Meaning you can't make any spiritual investment into anybody else. You can't sow into anybody else. When the Bible speaks about being a cheerful giver, you're the one who gives sparingly because you're afraid that your million is going to go down to only a, a measly 999,000 or whatever the heck the number is, right? It, it, so I hope, I hope listeners, you, you are hearing us. <laughs> there, there is, we have been called to be good stewards. We've been called to have, yes, kingdom business practice. Absolutely. Like Apologetics Canada, we're not just running around being foolish with finances. And but at the same time, we're we're saying you can sow into Apologetics Canada because it is good ground, because we are standing on the word of God and 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 truly trying to seek after what he's doing. And as I've seen in my short time, we're willing to hold on to the finances that do come in so that God can lead us as to where to put it. Jesus says this beautifully in his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Listen, if you, if you ask God for something, you know, is he is he not going to give you something good? And I love how Jesus says it, right? He says, listen, you're evil, and yet you can still give good gifts to your kids. Like, he doesn't pull any punches, right? Like, you know, right. you, you're, you're broken, yet you know how to give good gifts. God is good. Do you not think that he is going to not bless you, you know, give you good gifts? I mean, the fact is that the Sermon on the Mount is all about what it looks like to live a flourishing life, what it looks like to be blessed. 
But it, mm-hmm. it's getting at that balance between if, if you think a blessed life is to be financially prosperous or to even be t- to be healthy, that that's the good life, you have missed the gospel. But if you also think that being poverty-stricken and suffering and unhealthy, that that's the gospel, you too have missed the point. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that is not the gospel. I am convinced— and I, and I, cause I was just talking with a young person about this and they were just talking about ministry and how they weren't sure whether or not they wanted to go into ministry because they weren't sure if they'd been called to be poor. And I, and I thought, isn't that fascinating mm-hmm. how, again, that, that idea of the poverty gospel and how, how that influences the way that we think. And I remember I had this revelation early on in ministry where I was like, Hey, you know, God gave me a mind to think deeply about theology, but Maybe I could also use my mind to think deeply about finance, that I could not only be wise with how I use God's word, but I could be wise with how I use the resources God gives me and to make wise investments and to not be foolish with the way that I, that I spend. Again, it's that idea of wisdom and that that's not a bad thing, right? It's it, that it's okay to be wise with my money. Yeah. And I think if it hasn't been made clear already, right? It's not wealth that saves you, but it's not poverty that saves you. You're saved by grace. Your status, whether it's wealth or lack thereof, has nothing to do with your salvation in the sense that, especially in Protestant theology, you're saved by grace through faith alone, right? So if you somehow think to yourself, I am a better Christian because I am poverty-stricken, like Andy said, you're missing the point. Let me put it this way. I think we got to be really careful when we pray in such a way that we treat God as a vending machine, because that's precisely what God forbade his people Israel from doing, because that's what the neighboring countries were doing by making these sacrifices, you know, child sacrifice or, you know, um, drink offerings or what have you. It was a pagan way of sort of making the gods owe you something in such a way that you're basically manipulating the gods to do you favors, like a good weather for crops and those kinds of things. And God's saying, do not do that. I am your Lord. I am not going to be manipulated by you. I am good. I want to bless you, but don't think you can manipulate me by doing all these things that your idolatrous neighbor neighboring countries are doing. And yeah. my concern, my major concern with prosperity theology is that so many people enter into that mindset as if if I pray these things, right? If I pray these 31 promises, you know, if I pray these things over my life, somehow God is then obliged to bless me, or that at least that I, I access God's desire to bless me, right? Um I'm like, okay, careful there, because you just might be entering into that same pagan mindset that God so strongly warned against. He's a good father. He wants to bless you. It may may or may not come in material wealth, but what we need to do is learn to be content in his grace for us. And just to add something onto that, Steve, not only to be content, but is the gospel— on my lips? Is it in my heart? And this is, I think, something, this catches a lot of people off guard. 
because I'll often speak positively about Joel Olstein. Now I know I've just challenged you know some of the titles of his books, but a the guy's a great communicator. Now of course mm-hmm. I think that his theology is lopsided, right? He it's it's the it's the health and wealth, but where he's a unique uh, preacher is that he begins every sermon by lifting up his Bible and declaring that this is the Word of God. I've been in a lot of churches that are not health and wealth churches that I've never seen that. And then he ends every sermon by giving an opportunity to respond to the gospel. If you don't believe me, go check it out. He also begins every sermon with a joke, by the way, uh, a dad joke of the corniest <laughs> nature. But, uh, you know, he he gives a gospel invitation. Now, of course, we can critique uh, Joel Olstein ad nauseum. I get that. But I do wonder if there's any preachers that are listening to this podcast, when's the last time you gave a gospel presentation or mm-hmm. gave people an opportunity to respond to the gospel? Because you, you've got a health and wealth right. teacher here who gives an opportunity to respond to the gospel every sermon. Well, and, that, and that's part of the irony, of course, of, of somebody like Joel Olstein. Uh, but my thinking is here, hey, there, there is a need to understand that what true riches looks like and to have the gospel center in our lives and really to be convicted, am I sharing that gospel um, in, in those moments that, that I have the opportunity? Am I giving gospel opportunities to respond? And do I actually hold the word of God up? Now, I, I, as soon as I start saying stuff like that, people are like, yeah, but this or this or this about Joel Osteen. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But you could actually learn from that, that, hey, maybe I better lift up the word of God because I actually don't. And maybe I better give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel because I often don't. I just recently was talking with somebody and they wanted to share the gospel with somebody. And they knew that Olstein ends every sermon with a gospel presentation. So he was inspired by that. And then he went and listened to that gospel presentation so that he could think about how he could share the gospel with this person. And he did. And they actually respond and accept the gospel and they come to Christ. And again, I, I know that I, that's just going to mess people up because they'd be like, what? what am I supposed to do with that? I'm going to get emails for that. <laughs> I think I got sound effects here somewhere. I won't do it now. <laughs> no, that's that's so good. And cue, so just, the, cue the upset emails. Right, right. And because of the upset emails, this is the time we should probably come to a close. <laughs> uh, thank you, listeners, so much for joining us today on the AC Podcast. Um, as we do say often, we do pray that you were challenged and encouraged because this is a challenging topic. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Thank you for those that are already liking and subscribing and interact with us on social media. If you aren't already, please do so. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You'll be seeing episodes of the AC Podcast going up there shortly. We're really anticipating moving uh, the podcast over there as well. You will still be able to hear us on your regular streaming platforms. But until next time, you know the drill. Love God, love people, like it says on the hat. <laughs> Bye for now. Love God, love people, love people, love people.